I, mean, I want to share with you uh, on a topic called high places, high places. Do you ever get tired of going in circles? Do you ever feel like sometimes your life is just going in circles? In fact, one time I um, had something I said very frequently to people. I'd say, man, if I can just get around the curve, everything is going to be okay. If I can just get around the curve, I just get around this next curve until I realized one day I was on a circle. And the curve really just continues there. Sometimes we get in a rut. Have you ever been in a rut? Now, God in his mercy and goodness does not like his children to be in ruts or to continue going in circles. He actually desires us to advance and to move forward. So circumstances, discontentment, frustration, spiritual hunger, all serve to exert pressure to awaken us, to make some changes, to cause us to move out of our ruts. So I just would say to you, if you're going through some difficult circumstances, discontentment, frustration, spiritual hunger, perhaps the potter is applying some pressure on you to get you to move forward and out of the ruts that you may not even be aware that you're in. In Deuteronomy chapter two, Moses, as he's coming down to the end of his life, he's presenting a series of messages to the people of Israel, both first and second generation. And he is reminding them of, of all the things that God has done for them. And one of the things that he encourages the people with is what the Lord spoke to them when they were continuing to roam around in the wilderness. And in Deuteronomy 2, 2, he says, And the Lord spoke to me, saying, You have circled this mountain long enough. Now turn and go north. You have circled this mountain long enough. Now turn and go north. I believe I'm here this morning to let us all know, perhaps you have circled this mountain in your life long enough. It's time to turn and go north. It's time to make changes and begin to move forward. Someone several months back gave me a recent word, a, a word recently that as they were praying for us and what God is doing. And I wanted to share it with you because it not only applies to me, but it, it applies to all of us in this place that are a part of this church family. And I also believe the wider body of Christ as well. This word, she writes, I sense something big about to break on the horizon as God awakens his people in this time and brings them into a new season in their relationships with him. My deadness is breaking away and budding into fresh new life as vitality runs through my veins again. It's my sincere prayer and desire that each one of you, of us, will lay hold of the courage to embrace the change the Lord wants to stir in your hearts as well. To surrender control, loosen your grip and say, okay, here I am. It's all yours. Take me where you will. A new season is breaking forth and God is awakening his people. Do you believe that? And God is awakening his people. I don't say a lot about this very often, but um, I'm having the opportunity to, to meet with four other pastors in our community on a very regular basis. Four specific pastors of really some of the largest influential churches in our region. We are dedicating time every month, the five of us, to pray and seek God and fast 
for revival in our region, specifically praying for an undeniable move of his Holy Spirit across the body of Christ in this region. That's what we're praying and, and actively believing for. So we believe God is doing something special when he's bringing out of some serious denominational diversity, men of God that are coming together, that love Jesus, love God's word, and have a passion for an authentic revival in our region. That's happening, that is going on. God is awakening his people in this time. That's why Newbridge is such a significant part of what he is doing. So get ready. Take your Bibles and begin to find your way to the book of Habakkuk. In about 30 minutes, I'll continue on. <laughs> book of Habakkuk. Book of Habakkuk. This little minor prophet in three simple chapters packs quite a punch. I don't have time to get into what I believe is the eschatological prophetic significance in the book of Habakkuk, but it's worth studying out for yourselves. The similarities between what is happening in the land of Judah and the similarities of what's going on today is really quite amazing. But simply this, this prophet Habakkuk stands on the, on the on the precipice of a prophetic portal, if you will, that is looking out into the very near future. As the southern kingdom of Judah, that once was a godly kingdom, that once was trying to follow hard after God, they had some, they had some bumps along the way, but by and large, they were moving forward. Now the whole nation has descended into sin. They have forsaken the gods of their fathers, and iniquity is everywhere. And Habakkuk, in the early chapters, in chapter 1, he begins to cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, how much longer is this going to happen? Lord, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And then God begins to speak to Habakkuk and says, listen, I'm about ready to move. I am getting ready to send the Babylonians in and they are going to be my hand. They're going to, be, they're going to bring judgment. They're going to bring correction. They're going to cause my people once again to turn to me. So Habakkuk is seeing this getting ready to happen and he's being filled with God's word and he's being filled with the truth of the pending judgment that is coming upon the land from Babylon. Who knows where Babylon is? Modern day Iraq, right? Pending judgment, God using this nation, using this people to bring judgment and correction upon the people of God. I will not draw any inferences of modern day examples, but use your own imagination and creativity. Perhaps we could be living in a very similar time. But in the midst of this very devastating news that Habakkuk is receiving and telling the people about what is getting ready to come, it was not the best news in the world. Essentially, he's telling them, listen, we are getting ready to be overrun by a very wicked people. They're going to take over everything. They're going to impose their rule and their judgment upon us. And they're going to take the remnant that's here and they are going to deport them back to Babylon. Ultimately, for 70 years, they're going to be in exile. This is not really great news. And Habakkuk is hearing this, and in this passage, he begins to speak out of getting this information from the Lord. And I want you to see and, and hear his response and why I, this is so important, because I believe we, too, are in a similar situation in our national history. We have forsaken our God. Simply in God we trust on our currency. It's not as good as a plug nickel, is it? It really means absolutely nothing. It's only words. We as a nation, as we continue to slip into the abyss of iniquity, God is not so silent, but God has a plan. God's plan is to revive his people and to bring about revival. But can I tell you, God's ways are not our ways. 
Our ways always happen in our recliner with a nice book in a climate-controlled living room. That's not how God oftentimes brings about his purposes. We live in such a time. So the message of Habakkuk here and now is incredibly relevant for each of us who live in the context of a 21st century Western civilization and what is happening around the world and what is ultimately going to bring about what I believe is the culmination of the ages, which will usher in the return of Jesus Christ that will be preceded by one of the greatest revivals the world has ever seen. And it's coming and it's happening. It's God's heart. So Habakkuk, have you found it yet? <laughs> have I stalled long enough? Habakkuk chapter three, verse number two. He declares, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, repeat them in our day and our time. Make them known in wrath. Remember mercy. God came from Timon, the Holy One, from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Now down in verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on my high places. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for the next few moments that we have the opportunity, Lord, to hear what your word is saying to us now. Lord, I thank you that your word is relevant. It's not archaic. It's not dry. Your words are spirit and they are life. They are nourishment for our souls that, Lord, we cannot live by earthly bread alone, but only, only, Lord, by the word that comes from you to us. So today, Lord, as much as it is possible, Lord, let my voice become your voice. Lord, let your truth come forth that, Lord, we can be encouraged, we can be instructed, we can embrace the authentic conviction of the Holy Spirit, not the condemnation from the enemy, but the conviction of your spirit that will compel us, Lord, to advance, to turn north, to start up the mountain, and not continue going round the mountain, Lord. Help us today, God, in the great name of Jesus. Amen. In this passage, this text speaks of spiritual mountaintop experiences. How many of you would say we all love mountaintop experiences? We all love those experiences. But in this particular context, this mountaintop experience is occurring in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of hardship. God desires mountaintop experiences for every single one of us. Times when our relationship with him receives fresh fire, fresh motivation and fresh zeal. It is the purpose and plan of God for your life and my life that all of us experience many of these mountaintop experiences. In fact, Peter on the day of Pentecost, after they were all filled with the Spirit and they begin to go out into the street and, and, and Peter begins to preach this message with incredible boldness. Unlike the Peter we knew previously, he was now filled with the Spirit and he had the unction, the dynamite inside of him to declare God's Word. And he goes out on the street and he immediately begins to refer back to the prophet Joel. He said, this is that which the prophet Joel prophesied. Then the last days he would pour out his Spirit upon all flesh. And he goes on to say something very, very cool for me. He says, so that times of refreshing would come from the presence of the Lord. 
Have you ever been in a, a place in your life where you could use a refreshing, where you could use a refilling, where you could use a touch? Do you believe that it is true in the plan and purposes of God that he desires to refresh you on a very regular basis? He desires for you to have mountaintop experiences with him with great regularity, not infrequently. This is the God that we serve. He desires that for each and every one of us. But we have to internalize these truths for our own. They don't just apply to somebody else. They also apply to us. Perhaps you know who Martin Luther was. Martin Luther, God moved upon him to kick off the Reformation away from the Roman Catholic Church. And he would often write about something he would call the divinity in pronouns. The divinity in pronouns. And this is what he meant. There's a big difference in me saying to you, the Lord is a shepherd or the Lord is the shepherd. But how did David say it? The Lord is my shepherd. You see, the pronouns without scripture are incredibly important. There's a big difference in saying the Lord is my shepherd versus the Lord is a shepherd. To know the difference is of great spiritual benefit in our life. It's the same thing as saying this is an amazing Maserati or this is my Maserati. Do you think there's a difference in those two statements? It's of great benefit to us to know the difference in those two things. One may denote a fact, but the other denotes personal ownership or personal relationship. And this is what God is after in each of our lives. In fact, if you go back and you look at this verse I just read to you earlier, you see the pronouns leap off of the page. He says, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on my high places. This was a man who was not talking about the experience of somebody else. He was talking about his own life and his own experience. It is one thing as a believer when we recognize God is able to do certain things for other people, but it's quite another thing when we realize God can do things, but he actually will do things and he actually will do things for you. Is Jesus a savior or is he my savior? Pronouns are tremendously important. It's not enough to say, oh, Jesus saved or I believe in Jesus. Is he your savior? Is he your king? Is he is your Lord? Let me give you another example from the apostle Paul. Listen to the pronouns. Just lift off of this passage. Second Timothy 1 and 12. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. The I, Paul experienced these things. Habakkuk experienced these things. The prophet is speaking of God, bringing him to spiritual high places, no matter what life may throw at him. And believe me, he was on the precipice of life fixing to run him over. Remember, he is seeing the nation that he loves, that he cared for, that he was born in, that he heard the stories of the great Josiah revival. He's seen that nation come to a cataclysmic end. But yet God is showing him a high place in the midst of it. We need to see this from a personal vantage point. What high places does God have for you? Does God have high places for you? Of course he does. Have you experienced high places in him? probably much more 
infrequently than God's heart and desire is for you. Paul speaks in Ephesians of, of being able to stand in the evil day, of standing in the evil day. I believe everyone in this room has a day that will be the worst day in your life. You realize that? Everyone in this room has a day that will ultimately end up being the worst day in your life. I pray that you've already passed that point, perhaps. But in like manner, I think we don't have just day, but days, plural, that will be the best days of our life in Jesus. You see, the nature of our existence in this place, in this earth, affords us to get both, if you will, a taste of hell and a taste of heaven. You see, so we live in this kind of ambiguous state where we can taste of the kingdom of God, but we can also taste of the kingdom of darkness. And over the course of any given day or any given week, any given month, you're getting to sample both types of foods. And that which the enemy serves is difficult, is hard. It contributes to some of the worst days that we have in our life. But yet we have this promise that God says, taste and see that I am good and that I will sustain you. The prophet says, he will make me to walk upon my high places. Notice that the high places is plural. I love the little S on the end of that. It's not a one-time thing. I believe God has plans of many such days for you and for me and for all of his children. So how do we get there? If God has given us the feet of deer to climb to such places that part of it is on us, isn't it? To experience the fullness of what God has for us. This morning, I want to give us six high places, six high places that he has for each and every one of us. The first one is this, the high places of restored personal communion with God. Now this may sound very elementary, but you know what? Once we all had a sin blackened heart. We were once alienated from the presence of God, but a day came when God took all that mess away. He removed your heart of stone. He put in a heart of flesh and he restored relationship with you. Do you remember that day? I can think back to a moment in my life. I was 12 years old. I remember the day I can point to the pew where I was sitting when I received Jesus as the Lord of my life. It was instant for me. I knew something had, had taken place that transformed me. This communion that I now had with God. God went from being off in a distance now to being my God, my Father, and my King. You see, our personal relationship with Jesus should ever be the highest of our high places. It is the place with great regularity that we can experience a high place with God. But we must be diligent in our Christian walk lest we lose sight of our first love. This is one of the great traps that many of us as believers fall into. We, we experience Jesus and it's like the, you know, rocket boosters on the space shuttle. We get saved and we get filled with the Spirit and man, it just launches us up into the atmosphere. But they have a tendency to fall away and we lose the excitement and the love of knowing Him. The high place of personal communion must always be in the forefront of our vision. Personal communion with God. I don't mean once a week. I mean daily with Him. Let me ask you a, perhaps a very convicting question. When is the last time you had a high place of personal communion with your Father? If you're, ooh, that's kind of scary. No, I mean, really, personal communion with God. The good news is that God never intended there only to be a few or a hundred, but God intended them to be great 
plural in your life. Have personal communion with him. Relationship is what Paul meant when he would say that I pray without ceasing. So you should pray without ceasing. Paul was not trying to say that all the time we have to observe some kind of ritualistic format or forming it a prayer. That we're always having to come down and we got to put on the King James. If this and that, it Lord, this and all this. And if you talk that way normally, please talk to God like that. But if that's not how you normally speak and all of a sudden you turn on the King James dialect before you talk to God, that does not equate to intimacy in a personal relationship. That speaks to form and religion and traditions of man. The reason Paul was able to say pray without ceasing, it meant Paul understood it was my daily communion with God that enabled him to do what God had called him to do. It's every moment that we can approach the throne of grace boldly with our Father who is our great high priest who is able to sympathize in all of our weaknesses. That's the kind of guy we're coming to, right? The king of kings, the son of man, the son of God, this is who he is with us. These are the high places that he has called us to. And can I be very frank with you for a moment? These are the high places that will sustain us in this tierra forma, in this earth that we now live because this is a hard place. And the pleasures of sin abound everywhere we look. In fact, the word teaches us very clearly that sin is fun. You believe that? Absolutely. Sin is pleasurable, oh, for a season, but it is pleasurable. So unless we are experiencing high places with God, we are going to be what? Lured into the tempting draw of a sin culture that is pervasive everywhere we look. I often tell people, if you are not measuring at least an 8.5 in your walk with God on a 1 to 10 scale, you're just not going to make it in this environment. No longer can you get by coasting as a three or a four. Our environment has become very hostile and it targets your sin nature and it targets your flesh. Unlike any other period in human history, it's around us. We are being assaulted through the eye gate and through the ear gate everywhere. If you're not an 8.5, you need to get there expeditiously. You know, this is why, as Christopher shared last week, this is why we want to put such a great emphasis in our church family on ministry to children. This is why we don't want you to bring your kids to church to be entertained, to play wheeze and rock climbing walls and have fun. Those are all great and fine. But sometimes the modern methodology in many churches today, let's just bring them in and entertain them and we'll try to sneak Jesus in where they're not looking. What does that say about Jesus? He's enough. He's more than enough. In fact, I dare say if we begin to let our kids and our children and our young people experience Jesus, there's going to be less of a desire for all the fun things. Because he's enough. If they can taste him, if they can eat of that fruit, all of a sudden when the world begins to offer its fruit, it's going to pale in comparison to what Jesus does. But it's very difficult for our young people once they've tasted of religion that we offer. And then they taste of the world's fruit. They get on a dangerous path. Can I tell you, children are worth the effort, man. And they can experience God and it will ground them at a very young age. The high places of personal communion with God. Find that place. Don't be religious about it. If it's a prayer closet, get in the closet. If your car, get in the car. If it's the backyard, get in the backyard. If it's in store, I don't Whatever it looks like for you, whatever place you got to carve out, carve it out. And don't beat yourself up in religion. Well, I'm going to, I got to do it for an hour every day. Well, maybe you can, maybe you can't, but just do something. 
Can I tell you two drops of green food coloring in a five gallon bucket of water will tint every molecule of water in that bucket? Won't it? In other words, if you can just get a couple of drops of Jesus, it's going to tint everything throughout your whole day. Thank God he can take our little and multiply it into something significant and get, us, get a desire in us to want more of him. A personal communion with him is our greatest high place. Number two, high places of brokenness. High places of brokenness. Someone once said, revival is not the top blowing off, but the bottom falling out. <laughs> revival is not the top blowing off, but the bottom falling out. We are never so high in God as when he brings a deep spirit of conviction and contrition to our hearts. Probably Psalm 51 may well be part of the, one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible that was penned by David. Beautiful chapter. We quote it, we sing it continually, but Psalm 51 was, was penned out of the lowest moments, the lowest places in the life of David. Perhaps it was his very worst day that he began to pen Psalm 51 after the atrocious murder and conspiracy and Adultery with Bathsheba. David prays this in Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. David had a high place with God in the moment of the greatest failure. A place of brokenness. Isaiah had a similar day in Isaiah 6 is in the year that King Uzziah died. Again, the nation, horrific, the loss of somewhat a godly king. And then Isaiah has this experience with God on this devastating day. He said, then I said, woe is me for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. It's in contrition and brokenness that God will show us himself in profound ways. You see, men enjoy to... Look at the spotlight, but God likes to get us under the searchlight. You know, we like the spotlight. God likes the searchlight. He wants to get into where we really live, a place of brokenness. Some years back, I took an extended mission trip to Russia. I was there for about a month in Moscow in the dead of winter. I wasn't in a great spiritual place in my life at the time. I wasn't in much sin, but I was certainly in a lukewarm, just not feeling Jesus. And I went on this mission trip and for the first half of it, we were ministering to these poor orphanages. And it wasn't that long after the fall of the Iron Curtain where the communistic world was uh, reeling under the effects of that. And we were seeing kids and ministering to kids and we we're trying to start a church. And, and it was just what people were living in was awful. These little kids, they were losing their hearing because there's no access to antibiotics. A simple, a couple of antibiotic drops would have taken care of, but they were losing their hearing. They were losing their sight. So after about two weeks of this, I was back in my hotel room and I was completely unaffected by what I had seen up to that point. My heart was so numb. I wasn't being moved. I mean, my heart wasn't breaking. I was not experiencing empathy or compassion. I was just, I was hard. And I remember this, man, this has to stop. And I got on my knees and I said, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I've, I can't, I don't even feel your presence. Lord, forgive me for my hardness of heart. And I don't know exactly what happened, but God gave me a high place in Moscow on the 18th floor of this super cold hotel. And, and he just came in and in my heart, he just began to break it in that place. And I, and I wept and I wept for about 20 or 
uh, 30 minutes and then afterwards that turned to joy and laughing. I mean, God just came in and he restored me. Sometimes we go through moments in our life where we're just not feeling anything. There's no empathy, no compassion. We need to get on our faith and say, Lord, break my heart once again. And when he does, he comes in and he gives us the life-giving power of his experience. David goes on in Psalm 51 to say the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What does that mean? Is that when we come to God in brokenness, that he will never turn us away. It's a beautiful place to come to God. Number three, high places of sucking honey out of the rock. High places of sucking honey out of the rock. So Moses in Deuteronomy 32 is in the last part of his life before he dies. This is a beautiful chapter because out of all of his experience and everything that he has been through since God raised him up and sent him back into Egypt, he breaks out in song, worshiping God. And in this song contains everything that God had done up to that point. And he begins to sing this in Deuteronomy 32, 13. He made him ride on the high places of the earth and he ate the produce of the field and he made him suck honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock. He's referring back in a very poetic way to the miraculous that they experienced in their wilderness wanderings. It is a truly remarkable spiritual place in God when by his grace we can suck honey out of a rock and oil out of a flinty rock. You know, God brings us blessings in places that the devil intended for cursing. God will bring the greatest blessings into your life in the things that the devil intends to destroy you. Because we naturally are not going to put our lips on a rock and start sucking, are we? But as when Joseph was sold as a slave into Egypt, we find out out of that, much honey came from the rock. You see, we in the natural would never put our lips, but God has a way of leading us to such a place. And we have a choice that we can experience it or we can not experience it. And stand in awe of his majestic power. Who knows Jeremiah? Remember Jeremiah, the weeping prophet? I'm not sure if you've read through the book of Lamentations lately, but it's in, it's in the Bible. <laughs> so Lamentations is a song, is a, is, a, is a cry of desperation from the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah knew something about having rocks in his mouth. Listen to this passage. Lamentations 3.16. He, referring to God, has made me chew on gravel. Listen to the, the words. He has made me chew on gravel. He has rolled me in the dust. Peace has been stripped away, and I have forgotten what prosperity is. I cry out. My splendor is gone. Everything I had hoped for from the Lord is lost. The thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. Perhaps Jeremiah is having his very worst day on the planet. Do you hear his words? But look what happens in verse 21. Something shifts. Something begins to come out of the gravel that Jeremiah is chewing on. You ready? Verse 21. Yet I still dare to hope. When I remember this, 
The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who depend on him, to those who search for him. So it is good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. Can I tell you, some of you right now, you got gravel in your mouth. It's difficult. It's hard. You're facing financial pressures. You're facing physical difficulties. You're facing problems from the north, south, and east, and the west. It feels like the enemy has coordinated a multi-pronged approach on your life, and you are chewing gravel, and you're wondering, what's going on? Can I tell you, quit chewing and go for a minute. And God may surprise you because he's no respecter of persons. And can I tell you, there's honey in the rocky situations in your life right now. The honey's not just reserved for Winnie the Pooh, a chubby little cubby all stuff with fluff, right? <laughs> God's got honey in the rock in your situation. It's all right for a moment to complain to God. It's all right to do that. But if you got Jesus, something in you needs to kick into overdrive and say, all right, I got rock, but I know God's got honey. I'm gonna find it here. And Jeremiah, on the worst day in his life, he found the honey. On Moses, in some of the bad days of his life, he found the honey and the water and the rock. God does that for those of us. It is a high place of brokenness before the Lord. You'll discover him. Number four, high places of sacrificial giving. Abraham had such an experience when he went to offer Isaac on the altar and he found the incredible provision of the Lord. Has there ever been a time in your life when the Holy Spirit challenged you to give sacrificially to a need that would bring you to a high place in him? Perhaps you heard the story of a missionary, perhaps a neighbor that was in need, and God challenged you to give something that you really didn't have, that you really need to appropriate it toward a more pressing bill, but you pushed through the fear and you gave it anyway, and God proved himself faithful, and you experienced a high place in him because you took that step? Have you had those moments? Those high places are available all the time with great regularity. Do you remember when God dealt with you about tithing? About giving the first fruit offering, the 10% of what he has blessed you with, and you finally surrendered to him in that area, and you discovered another high place in sacrificial giving and the provision of God out through your entire life. It's a high place because when God gets a hold of you and me in our, in our area of finance, then it is a demonstration that we are truly and genuinely trusting God. That's why finances are so closely connected with our heart. Sacrificial giving causes us to walk in a high place with Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides because our God does provide. When is the last time you gave over and above? How far back do you have to remember when you experience this kind of sacrificial giving? Something King David understood is he was making an effort to buy the vineyard that was offered to be given to him. But you remember David's response. He said, no, in 2 Samuel 24, no, I don't want you to give this to me but I will surely buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. 
I will not bring a sacrifice of praise that costs me nothing. What wisdom, isn't it? Number five, moving quickly. High places of forgiveness and mercy. Luke 23 and 34, but Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. The most marvelous passages in the Bible to me as I try to put myself in that position, hanging on a cross, all of his disciples, everybody he had healed, everybody he had fed, all that he had done. Now, where were they? They were gone. Just prior, they were screaming, give us Barabbas. And Jesus hangs there and says, forgive them for they know not what they do. You know what a high place in God is? When you as a believer have been wounded by another and have been cut deep into your own heart and from your innermost being flows not wrath and bitterness, but the forgiving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this is a high place in God. Perhaps one of the highest places in God. Don't hold on to a little simple offense because it will destroy you. It will hurt you. It will mess you up. Let me show you something real quick. Came across this illustration. I have a glass of water here. Anybody want to take a guess of how much water is in here? You want to take a guess? Eight ounces, nine ounces, six ounces, four ounces, 10 ounces. Yeah, a little half a glass, that's pretty good. Can I tell you the real issue is not how much water is in here, but it's how long I hold the glass. That's the real issue. There's only a little bit of water in here. Now I can hold this for a little while, but if I hold it like this for two hours, what's gonna happen? My arm's gonna begin shaking and trembling if I can even hold it that long. What if I try to hold this for longer than that? Maybe for the rest of the day, maybe for two days. This little tiny amount of water will completely ruin me physically. It will bring me down. It will bring me to my knees. Don't ever think you can hold on to one simple little offense. Because the longer you hold on to the littlest offense, oh, I can handle it. I can hold that. That person wronged me. It's no big deal. I'm going to keep that. The longer you hold it, what's it going to do to you? It's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt you and become heavier and heavier and heavier and ultimately weight you down. Amen. Someone has said that forgiveness is the fragrance a flower gives off after it has been crushed. May such sweet aroma flow from us continually when we are wronged. Those who've been shown mercy know how to walk in the high places of offering mercy. Can I tell you, you will experience a high place in Jesus like none other when forgiveness flows towards someone who has wronged you. You will find a place in God that is the nearest to the heart of Jesus who hung on a cross and said, forgive them for they know not what they do. You are never more like Jesus than when you forgive. You hear that? Oh, I want to work miracles. I want to know. You are never more like Jesus than when you forgive. Because on the worst day of Jesus' life was the greatest day is when he demonstrated forgiveness. And last but not least, number six, the high places of praise and worship. Since God inhabits the praises of his people, Psalm 22, three, 
And the Father seeks people to worship God in spirit and in truth, John 4, 23. It is easy to see that there are high places in God when we worship and praise him. Praise and worship is never more sweet and powerful than when it is offered on one of those worst days of your life. You realize that? In other words, thank God for the great days and we should give thanks for those. But the sacrifice of praise. We used to sing the old song back in the day. We bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. You know, it's kind of a little flippant carnival kind of song. I mean, a sacrifice of praise means you're bringing the praise and it requires sacrifice. That's the time when high places in God mean so much to us. When we choose in those moments, as the word admonishes us, as Peter does, to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. When everything that begins to go wrong, you begin to praise God, and you're going to find out a high place in him that is so rich. I have a pastor friend, and um, he told me this story, and I come back to this so often. Eleven years ago, his 13-year-old son accidentally shot himself. He was at the church office when he got the call to quickly come home. He and a friend were in the living room and they were just probably messing around doing something that they shouldn't, a horrible accident. And it immediately killed him. My friend had to go in and can you, I mean, can you even fathom? As my friends tell me this story, I'm hearing him recount it just like, oh my gosh. You think about the worst days of one of your lives. Certainly that was the worst day in his life. And he goes home and he, he begins to recount the story. And I won't tell you all the details, but one of the things that he said to him, he said, he said that night, I get emotional because he's, he's a good friend. He said, that night I laid down in bed next to my wife. And the only thing I knew to do was to reach out and grab her hand and say, honey, we're going to get through this. Jesus is going to help us get through this. And he made a statement that I say at least twice a week, that's emblazed upon my conscience and mind. He says, during that time, 11 years ago, he said, I discovered a grace that I wish I never knew existed. I discovered a grace that I wish I never knew existed. Can I tell you, my brothers and sisters, bad days will come. Oh, they will. Trials and tribulations will come. Jesus promised that. Some of those one of those will be the worst day of your life. But can I tell you, our God in the midst of those moments will show you a grace, will sustain you in a way that you wish you never knew existed. You see, this is what God does through praise and worship. You see, we get a chance in the here and now to worship our God continually. And I don't mean what we do for 30 minutes on a Sunday morning. That's a beautiful experience as well. But I'm talking about those moments when things are going south and you begin to cry out to the living God. That's what's powerful. How can we, how can we then begin to get to some of these high places? We got to cooperate with what God is doing we got to be yielded vessels. You know, God is the potter and we're the clay and the, and the clay must yield to the potter. The clay must stay on the potter's wheel. It's our job and our, God desires us to cooperate with him. God desires for us to have high places in him if we cooperate. And as we do, he will fashion our feet like the feet of a deer to climb the mountain of God. And let me leave you with this, this thought this morning. You will find 
the mountains you face in your life, the mountains of difficulty, the mountains of great obstacles are actually the mountains of God where you will experience him. They're one and the same. Sometimes we say, well, this is the mountain of affliction and this is the mountain of God. Can I tell you, they're the same mountain. And the mountain of adversity and the mountain of difficulty that we are climbing are the very times when you will discover God in ways that only that will teach. It's the place in God where he will hide you in the cleft of the rock and he will show you his glory. And you will know him like you've never known him. But for those of us who choose to live in past experiences, while we should ever be thankful for them, God has new experiences for us. And we shouldn't live on what once was. We should live on what is and what is to come. We should live off of that. So I ask you, where are you going around the mountain? Do you hear the cry of God that's trying to get through to that first generation of his people and says, listen, quit going around the mountain. Turn and go north. Turn and go up the mountain. And you see, I will make your feet as deer's feet. I will equip you to overcome everything. And you will taste of me in ways you've never tasted of me before. But you got to get out of the rut. You got to get out of the rut. Amen.